uh, Chris and the MIA invited me to take a tour of uh, UK race engineering companies. And it just really opened my eyes. And the, the race engineering that's taken place in the UK is unbelievable. And, and you go to these small shops doing just really huge things for the sport in terms of the, the technical side of the sport. And then you think about it and you start tracing back uh, some of the masterful things that the UK engineering companies can do. And eventually you, you end up that England was so great at making armor. They, they, they mastered metallurgy and, and working with metal hundreds of years ago. And there's a direct line from uh, making armor all the way up to uh, the engineering expertise available in the UK's Motorsports Valley. Delighted to have you. Thank you. As John mentioned, we have a 20-something years history together. Nobody does a better job than you at getting people together, exchange, interact. You're the, you're the master of, uh, you know, getting people together in a place, engaging with them, you know. Change. I remember every time you start, says you have business card in your pockets. Don't leave them in. Give them around, you know. Uh, but not that people, not that many people do that. Uh, you, you, you're the king of that. So we're delighted. It's eight o'clock. Uh, you have a lot of great things you're going to be sharing with us. So you're also going to be your own panelist and moderator. So this I'll, could be fun. <laughs> I will let you on, and you, you might. You, you, we got a call yesterday, and you said we have a little uh, uh, situation with Malcolm. So can you please explain, and then we'll let you on. No, I, well, I'll, be, I'll take it over from here and uh, explain that we have three panelists coming on. We have Duncan Wiltshire, who's one of the supremos of historic racing around the UK and Europe. Uh, Alan Gow, who's head of our touring car uh, series, very successful touring car series, and also the president of the FIA World Touring Cars. Uh, and we also have Malcolm Wilson. Now, Malcolm Wilson's a World Rally Champion team, M Sport. But unfortunately, yesterday he was called because of the quarantines, he, uh, he had to fly to Monza in Italy to do the Italian rally. And he had to fly there too earlier. So I pre-recorded an interview with him. And that's what we're going to move on to just after I've introduced a couple of slides, Francis, if I can. Yes, so you're in charge and you'll give us a signal and I'll get the producer. So John and I will go off the camera, but I'll be right there with you. Thanks, thanks for your introduction. Well, good uh, morning, good evening, wherever you may be. I apologize for our strange lighting. It was fine five minutes ago, but uh, it's, gone out, it's, it's gone very dark over here. It's only four o'clock in the afternoon. But what I want to just start off by talking about is the subject here is about this strange region that we call Motorsport Valley in the UK and why it's so special and what connection it has uh, with the USA. John. Kilroy very kindly remembers some of the words that I've used in the past. We, we can, to some degree, uh, link our motorsport success to uh, the two world wars, more particularly the last one, but that's so long ago, let's say we've moved on from them. Um, there is a tremendous parallel between the USA and uh, the UK motorsport uh, over the years, same kind of evolution, but you guys started to race on ovals and you made it a kind of uh, festival. Uh, and we, in Europe and in the UK, we enjoyed road courses. Uh, we eventually moved on to airfields because we had quite a few left after the war. Some of them built by yourselves, thank you, uh, thankfully. Uh, but we're also, our history diverges from your own because of the size of your nation. And you became a national motorsport uh, operation. And we're such a tiny island, really small island. Uh, 
that it was uh, obvious that we would have a very intense national series uh, or ranges of uh, races. Um, but we reached out obviously to global friends. And uh, what we've obviously done as a small island, we trade with the world. So we would reach out to the world with our version of motorsport and uh, directly and indirectly with our friends in France and in Italy. Uh, that led to the founding of Formula One. The first race in the world was held in 1950 here uh, and in the UK at Silverstone. And of course, if you think about 1950, this is post-war. Uh, there was a great need for entertainment. People really loved the idea of cars uh, hurtling around racetracks. And so it really caught the imagination of a, of a very depressed uh, Europe and the UK. Um, but that was the first world championship race. And it became a major global catalyst because it was a world championship from the very start uh, under the auspices of the FIA in France. Um, and of course, that drove it into becoming a global business. We were lucky in the UK that uh, we had got some good manufacturers that were specialists in racing on airfields, on very smooth uh, circuits and not necessarily the long distance road circuits that you guys enjoyed in America too uh, before the war. Well, that, that changed. We had a major accident at Le Mans, you may know about, and there were one or two others, Mila Media, for example, and they banned, many of the countries banned road racing uh, on the public roads. So they moved on to the most appropriate place, which was airfields. And we had, if you like, by then developed some specialism. Now we're, uh, Formula One is obviously an international business. It's owned by a NASDAQ quoted uh, organization, as you probably know, the Liberty Group. And we're grateful that they bought it. They've invested heavily in Motorsport Valley with their head office in London and an operation center in Biggin Hill just outside, strangely in a, a World War II airfield. It's a matter of interest. Uh, and they've helped spread uh, that the Formula One world uh, is growing fast. And we're thankful for those investments. In fact, eight of the companies uh, that run Formula One in the UK are all international companies. But obviously, we've also, over that period of time, we've developed great friendships in America. I was interested to look here that uh, we have a really good motorsport relationship going back a long way. And I love some of the history. So uh, obviously, the binding point is that both our, both our nations just love racing cars. It doesn't matter what kind. We just love racing. Uh, in 1916, I'm pleased to say the Indy 500 was won by a Briton. Uh, it, strangely enough, if you check it out, unfortunately, he was born in Italy, but he moved when he was two years old and he was educated in the UK. So we claim him as a Briton. And he was, he was happy to say he was a Brit, but uh, his name was Resta and uh, he won the 1916. And it, 24 hours of Daytona had cars like Jaguar and Lotus and Lola, as you, you'd know, and many, many drivers. Uh, Derek Bell and, uh, was just one of many. And at Indy, we had the March Lotus, Reynard, and of course the Cosworth engines. Um, so we've got a good connection. We still have a good connection. And if this, if this uh, uh, 50 minutes is anything to go by, I hope we can build more relationships. All our contact details are available. We're doing this because we want to build two-way trade with your country and develop much better and closer collaboration and racing wherever you want in the world. As we both part, part size, face really unusual futures over the next decade or so. So we want more trade. And what I thought I would do is I'm just going to, I hope this works, I'm just going to take you to a couple of slides uh, just to show you a little bit more about the, uh, let me just do this correctly. So I press that one, I know. This is the Motorsport Valley community. It's the quick way of you finding out about it. On that slide, eight out of 10 Formula One teams, I told you the values. 
Uh, the most unique part of this is 30% of their engineering sales uh, revenues are invested in R&D. Um, and in the UK, we would get very substantial government reward for that. We get R&D tax credits. But it's, that is twice the amount of pharmaceutical industry in the UK and 10 times that of the automotive industry. So uh, we are, as you all know in motorsport, we are heavily invested in on, uh, ongoing development. You can see that we have over $13 billion worth of annual revenues, 4,500 businesses, and 20,000 highly skilled uh, engineers. Most importantly, in the bottom right-hand corner, the majority of our companies go around the world and they export their talent. So if I show you the next one, I just wanted to put this. This is the, uh, the English uh, map, not the whole UK. And just to give you a scale, that was why I put it on here. We're 300 miles from west to east and north to south. Now, to you guys, that's kind of a local drive. To us, that seems like another world. In fact, way up in the top left corner, you'll see a purple dot. That is where M Sport, the World Rally Team, who you'll just be hearing from, that's their base. And way down in the south is where McLaren is based. You can see there's a, a group of uh, Formula One uh, folk, obviously, all collected together in that crescent shape. And that's the heart of Motorsport Valley, which is where I'm talking to you from. I wanted you to see the scale. It's it's uh, the whole of the UK is Alabama, about the size of, size of Alabama. And England is a very small part of that. But it shows how easy it is to get around. And in fact, the proximity of the comp companies means that we can answer questions, deal with collaborations, supply one another very, very quickly. So th that was only to give you a background to the uh, to the two, um, uh, if you like, two infographics. One is the scale and the location, and one is the volumes. And now what I'd like to do, because my friend Malcolm Wilson, who runs one of the most successful World Rally teams for many years, he unfortunately was literally taken to Italy yesterday, or had to go to Italy yesterday. So we pushed this together. I apologize, it's not the greatest interview video. In fact, I look like some manic, manic uh, idiot out of... Uh, some TV series, but try and ignore me and stop laughing at me and listen to the words of Malcolm. But first of all, I'm just going to show you how he earns his money, and then we'll go on to the uh, the other videos of the interview. So can I call up the M Sport video, please?
Well, Malcolm said uh, in the interview, he said, all any American friends who want to come and see that fabulous facility are really welcome. You've got the contact details through either the MIA or Francis. But now let's just uh, enjoy uh, a few minutes with Malcolm Wilson uh, and my interview. And please ignore my face. Over <laughs> to you. The World Rally Championship, Chris, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a series of events all around the world. Normally, there's 14 events in the, in the, in the season. Obviously, this season has been curtailed by, I think we'll end up with six events. But uh, we, we compete on basically all the conditions that you can imagine. So we can go to Sweden with as low as minus 30, or we can be in uh, Sardinia or Greece or wherever, and then it can be 40 degrees. So we've got snow, gravel, tarmac, wet tarmac, we've got all the conditions that can ever be thrown at you. So, you know, you have to have a car that's very versatile, be able to cope with all the different conditions. Is it that battle with the conditions that captures the imagination of the spectators or is it the power? Or Tell us about it. I think it's a combination of everything. I mean, the conditions are a big thing because obviously, you know, when you are competing on snow and the speeds that these guys are going, it's, it's very spectacular. Then, you know, you've got the high-speed roads of Finland on the gravel. Um, and then, of course, you've got the tarmac rallies in uh, in Monte Carlo, the famous, you know, the famous events. But I think what's happened since uh, we introduced some, FIA introduced some new technical regulations in 2017, which, to be honest, have made the cars very spectacular. And it reminds me very much of the Group B era back, back in the 19, in the mid-80s, where, you know, the cars were really such a focal point and really exciting. And I think we've actually, we're on the roadmap at the moment to creating that again. What kind of uh, brake horsepower were those old Group B cars that were terrifying? Because you drove them, didn't you? Yeah, those were quite scary compared to uh, what the cars are currently like. But I mean, in the in its raw form, the, the likes of the Audi Quattro and everything had like 650 horsepower. But of course, you know, you had you didn't have the anti-lag systems on your engine that you do nowadays. So you've got this massive kick in your back and incredible surge of power. Whereas now these current cars just deliver power like a normal road car, but and they're only basically 400 horsepower. But the times are significantly quicker than what we were doing with 250 horsepower more back in the mid 80s. Is that right? But you know, in the old days, you were using that speed. The audience in America must know how close were the spectators. Ah, I mean, I can remember when I was driving. I mean, uh, you know, it was incredible. I mean, places like Portugal, when you were near Lisbon, centre of the stages. I mean, literally, the, the road would just open up in front of you. So even though you'd done your wreck and your pace notes, they didn't really mean anything because the spectators were all—they were lining the road and wherever you had a cut, there would be people. So, um, yeah, then obviously there was the, the tragedy and that's obviously one thing that's improved significantly, spectator safety. So it's a major sporting event in those some of those extreme countries from New Zealand to uh, the most extreme circumstances. Yeah, I mean, if you think, you know, with Chile, Argentina, Mexico, and a lot of the places in Europe, uh, and as you mentioned, Australia, New Zealand, next year we actually go to Japan and to back to Kenya, Nairobi. The transportation, we tend to, because we don't have a large stock of cars, so we tend to air freight the cars to the flyaway events. And then obviously all the infrastructure, the service equipment, everything goes by sea freight. But on average, we send in eight, nine, uh, 40-foot containers, sea freight around the world for the, the flyaway events 
roughly then, depending on how many cars we're running, up to five, six cars can be air freighted. Uh, and then on top of that, we tend to air freight around 10 tonnes of air freight spares for um, for each flyaway event. Well, Malcolm, you're with Ford. Your OEM, your automotive brand is Ford. How many, in, over the last two or three years, how many other brands are involved and can you name a few of the leading ones? Yeah, currently, um, uh, sort of up until a couple of years ago, there was four leading manufacturers. There was uh, Citroen, Hyundai, um, ourselves, and Toyota. Um, at the moment, so there is three manufacturers currently, uh, and there's new regulations coming again for 2022, which uh, we've all had to sign up now with the FIA uh, in, in November this month. So for 2022, with a new car that's coming, uh, there's three manufacturers currently registered. And obviously we're hoping to create more because then we're going to a hybrid system for uh, 2022. Yeah, the, what we class as the Rally One car, which is a WRC car, um, is roughly what you're talking around about is, is, a, is around about a million dollars. But then we're the only company with the Ford product that basically we've got the complete ladder of, uh, of opportunity from a Rally Five right up to a Rally One. So Rally 5 is a two-wheel drive Fiesta, uh, and roughly you're probably looking around $50,000 for something like that as a, as a starter car, uh, which is a car that's used in a lot of the junior championships in various parts of the world. Do you work with American companies? I mean, do, are, they, are they able to supply product that is suitable for your level of expenditure now, presumably, are the other rally teams too? Yeah, to be honest, we work with quite uh, quite a few American companies. I think primarily, to be honest, in in engine components. Right. So um, things like you know the Conrad bolts, big end bolts, uh, they're all made in the US. Uh, I think even currently our cylinder head gaskets are made there. And of course, the big ticket item is uh, is turbochargers from uh, from Garrett, and yeah. that is a, a control turbo that we all all the manufacturers have to use the same Garrett. Uh, turbo, and that regulation is also continuing in uh, with the new regs for 2022 for the for the high level rally one category. And because you know our audience here today, if anybody feels that they've got something that could help you win a world rally, they should contact you through us if they wish. Absolutely, if they've got something that they uh, <laughs> they think is going to improve our performance, my uh, my email and my phone is on 24 hours a day. How did you get into rallying? It just occurs to me. I mean, I think you were a young young man. You still are a young man. I don't misunderstand. <laughs> I, I wish I was. No, that all started many, many years ago. My parents had a car breakers yard, tyre distribution. And in those days, we used to get the local rally guys coming in for the to buy the 1500 Ford Cortina engine to put in a Ford Anglia. So I'm giving my age away now, to be honest, Chris. Um, and of course, I, I was, I think, 12 year old and I just used to see these guys arriving with these cars with wide wheels on. And uh, to be honest, I just got the bug at a very early age. And uh, to be honest, once I was old enough to drive, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and had a reasonably successful career as a driver, not probably what I wanted to achieve, but uh, then on the other hand, I don't think I'd be sat here doing what I'm doing if I put all my effort into the driving side of it. Yeah, so, but you, you've won your championships. What about, <laughs> personally, you've won it. What is the M Sports uh, record? Uh, well, we were very lucky that um, we we took on the Ford contract for the 1997 season, which we've had uh, since then. So what is it, 22, 23 years now, we've been running the Ford World Rally Team. And our first real success came in 2006, where we won the manufacturer's uh, title. And we followed that up again in 2007. 
um, then many, many uh, victories. I think one of our, uh, one of we feel we've created a record that will never be broken by anybody. Uh, we started our point scoring run on Monte Carlo in 2002, and since 2002 Monte Carlo, we've had a car finish uh, in the points on every single rally in the World Championship, and that is currently standing around 260, I think, consecutive point scoring finishes, which, you know, it's something I'm really proud of. It sends out a message as how serious we look at reliability and attention to detail. And of course, um, I think it's 70 odd victories in, in the process. That's a darn good record. Tell me, the, the, our friends in America won't know your facilities that you've got there and how many people you employ and the size of your plant or your or your estate or whatever. Tell us. Okay, uh, this the, the place where we currently are is we moved into here in 2000. Um, before the start of the epidemic, we had just over 250 employees based here in Kokomoth in Cumbria. We've also got a place in Krakow in Poland, where we basically do all two-wheel drive rally product and we employ about 60 people there. But the main base is here in, uh, in Cumbria. It's a set in 115 acres of land. We've just currently uh, in the process of finalizing. We've built a, a two and a half kilometer test track with a new manufacturing facility, of, which is 126,000 square feet. Um, along with all of machine shop fabrication facilities. I mean, we try to be as self-sufficient as we possibly can be, never be 100%, but it's it's always the target to try and, uh, you know, one, it, you know, it, it helps if you do come up with some new technology. Um, it helps you to keep it in-house. Okay, you can never keep it a secret for long in motorsport, but if you can get that advantage for two or three events, then uh, it's obviously very worthwhile. Let's just end with something about Motorsport Valley? I think we're very lucky, obviously, with the majority of uh, the Formula One teams being here. And then obviously there's a massive interest in, in motorsport in, in the UK. We've also got some very good links with uh, universities and colleges uh, where we get people, you know, you get your pick of people who are doing all, all of these motorsport programs from the likes of Myerscore College and Cranfield University. So. The only sad thing is I tend to be the training ground for a lot of these these aspiring Formula One engineers and designers. They, they tend to serve their time here and then move on to if, the, if their aspirations are Formula One. So, uh, But on the other hand, you know, my key people have made sure that we retain those people uh, because they're, they're the success of the business. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, I'm afraid he's, I think right now he's halfway to Fanza in Italy. So life's tough for a guy like that. They've moved one of the world rallies onto the race or around the racetrack there. Um, so I'd like to just move on and introduce my other two guests. That was a good insight into rallying as we know it. Um, and I know Malcolm wants to say he's going to the States to try and encourage uh, a world rally round to take place in uh, the United States soon. There's, there's kind of an enthusiasm and he would love to see the racing over there. Now I have my two friends uh, about to join us and one is Alan Gow, president of the FIA World Touring Car Commission, but his, if you like, his most important role in motorsport at the moment is he's uh, head of the very, very popular British Touring Car Championship. Hi Alan, welcome to us. Hi right, Chris, good to see you. you. You haven't pressed all the wrong buttons like I have, so you win a you win a chocolate bar. 
and there's Duncan Wiltshire. And then Duncan is one of the, is the supremo of many historic race events and uh, uh, other historic car events around UK and Europe. So welcome, Duncan. Thank you, Chris. And between us, we're going to answer some questions and if you like, explain some of the successes of Motorsport Valley. And uh, although you're both series promoters and owners, perhaps you, we may be able to answer some of the questions on the technical front too. Who knows, let's have some fun together. Why don't we start with you, Alan, you know, age before beauty, all that kind of stuff. The, um, so we, tell us exactly what is the British Touring Car Championship? Uh, you know, where does it, uh, it's a national series, just explain it to our friends. Okay, the, the British Touring Car Championship is actually uh, the third oldest continually running championship in the world. Um, only Formula One and NASCAR uh, are older than the BTCC. We've been around since 19, uh, 1957. Uh, so we are, by a very long way, the biggest uh, championship in, in, in the UK, uh, four-wheel championship in the UK. Um, so, you know, we have big crowds. We, we, we have, we have uh, uh, big-name drivers driving for us throughout the, throughout the history, um, just to fill you in on, on, on a bit of that history. Um, there's been something like 43 Formula One drivers driving the BTCC over the years, and uh, even people like Steve McQueen, uh, has driven in it. Dan Gurney, Jim Clark. Jim Clark won the championship actually um, back in '66, I think it was. Um, but the BTCC is 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 the most popular motor racing championship in in the country. Um, I don't know how else I can explain it than that. Um, it, it uses uh, it uses saloon cars, sedan cars in in, in American terminology, uh, and we all use a two liter. Uh, turbocharged uh, engine producing around about 380 horsepower. Well, let me just thank you for that introduction, Alan. And Duncan, you you can now tell us about the series or the, the uh, if you like, all the series that you're getting involved in. What exactly is the historic car landscape in the UK and what is historic racing in the UK? Yeah, well, his, his, historic racing is a, is a subset of uh, the classic car world. And of course, you know, the classic car world in the UK has really been around since the dawn of the motor car. Um, originally, they were just cars. As time moves on, people get nostalgic about uh, the cars they grew up with or the cars they saw racing. Uh, you know, we all had those pictures on the bedroom wall of the cars we'd like to own or the, the drivers we'd like to have been or like to aspire to be. And uh, that, that's what's inspired the whole of the classic car and the historic car movement. In, in the, put it into context. In the UK, the, uh, the, the the classic car movement as a whole, there are there are one and a half million cars registered in the UK that are classic cars. Okay, that's three and a half percent of all vehicles that are registered in the UK, including buses and trucks. So it, it is a phenomenally huge proportion of of the of the automobile world in the UK, um, and as an industry, the the in its totality, just in the UK, classic car industry is worth about 10 billion dollars uh, in, in 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 2019 terms anyway prior prior to pandemic issues um, and of course historic racing is a subset of that historic racing is is all about um uh you know as a fan being able to go and see those cars you grew up with you know alan talked about the likes of uh, jim clark uh you know to go and see jim clark's original cars being raced or if you're lucky enough to be an owner 
you actually be sitting in there and pretending to some degree that, you know, you are Jim Clark for a moment, uh, a little nanosecond of history. And that's what fuels the, the whole of the historic car movement. Well, that's right. And who controls it, Duncan? I mean, how, how is it organised? Yeah, motorsport is, uh, uh, historic motorsport is, uh, uh, like all motorsport, at this grassroots level, it's, it's run and managed by a whole host of, uh, of uh, racing clubs. Um, uh, and as you come up the, uh, the spectrum, you get into to, to commercial promoters and, and some very, very large events. The whole movement is governed by the same set of regulations and governors as Alan's British Touring Car Championship, and at a certain level, as the same as F1. So in the UK, we, we are, uh, are governed by Motorsport UK and the, uh, the rule books. We have the single sanctioning body here in the UK that we all uh, have to conform to. Uh, and internationally, we come under the auspices of the FIA. So at that level, we are, we, we are complying with the same set of regulations as, as every other level of motorsport. Um, the one thing being we have a whole host of exceptions because these are old cars. And um, the, 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 state, the really obvious thing, the fundamental difference between historic racing and modern motorsport is um, historic racing fundamentally is a leisure pursuit. It's being, it's being, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's being run by four people who are lucky enough to own the cars uh, and for fans who want to come and relish and revel in that nostalgia. There's nobody standing at the end of the pit lane uh, in a talent spotting, um, which uh, is an interesting point because there are, there are some very, very capable drivers who've come out of historics and got into modern motorsport. They're, they're relatively rare, um, uh, but I think it's fair to say the majority of your historic racing drivers are probably of an age where they're, they're, they've probably missed their chance to get into, uh, into top-light uh, modern motorsport. But thanks, Duncan. I tell you, Alan, I was smiling there to myself that if uh, if you have difficulty with your scrutineers and keeping all your teams, some of whom I know, as you know, personally, uh, to stick to the rules, can you imagine what fun Duncan has? I mean, they're going to have to say, this was, this was great I, in 1937. This is how the car looked. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to do, do a deal with that. I, I, I take my hat off to Duncan. I, I don't think I'd be able to deal with that. Such a variances in the cars and and people's interpretation of what the cars are like now compared to compared to how they actually were. But uh, yeah, absolute minefield. So um, I'll leave that side of it to him. I think that's for an Australian interpretation is a very charming way of saying it. I think our American <laughs> friends won't understand that. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Alan, just in terms of technology and specification. Uh, obviously, our friends know the NASCAR world with their with their cars and their brands, how do you handle uh, the technology and specification of the of the various manufacturers? Do you have manufacturers uh, in your? Is it a spec series? You you tell tell my friends sure. a bit more about what the shape. Okay, is. so so the BTCC is a BTCC car is is any car that's that's a that's a largely available for sale uh, saloon car, or sedan, uh, or, or large hatchback type car uh, on the market. Um, it, it is not a spec series. We have 11 different makes and models uh, on the grid. Uh, we have front wheel drive. We have rear wheel drive. You know, we have we have different body shapes. We have three door uh, saloons, uh, three door sedans. We have uh, coupes. We have hatchbacks. We've even had uh, um, station wagons, as, as as our friends in America call it. So it's it's not a spec series as that's as far as that's concerned. Uh, all the engines, the engines are different, um, that, but they all comply to a two-litre turbocharged regulation. 
Um, and there are some spec components within that. So pretty much like every racing series around, there are spec components. There's, there's spec gearbox from Extract, there's spec uh, 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 dampers, there's spec suspension mounts and everything else. So there are some spec components within that, but it's uh, up to you which, which, which car you screw those, that, those components to and, and, uh, and, and what sort of job you make of it. So we don't balance those sorts of things out as far as performance goes. But how do you keep the OEM, the major brands, happy? I mean, they must they must run all the cars, or do they own the cars, or how do you keep? Them uh, well, look, the manufacturer the manufacturers all deal in in their motorsport programs in many different ways around the world. Uh, so, uh, for instance, in the DTCC, uh, the BMW uh, factory team is run by a company called WSR uh, on behalf of BMW UK. Long gone are the days of, of, of factories running cars out of the factory, if you like. Uh, they're, they're, they always uh, you know, contract those elements out to, to, to private teams. So we have teams undertaking those manufacturer uh, programs for them. And of course, at least 50% at least 50 of the cars on the grid are developed and built by private teams where they don't have any manufacturer input. But such is the, and I would say this, such is the beauty of our regulations is that a, is an independent team, a private team, can compete on an equal basis with a manufacturer team. Um, and we actually saw that this year. We had a, a private team uh, who built a new Infinity, uh, uh, which made its debut this year and won the championship, beating the Works BMW team uh, and the Works Honda team in a very close fight to the finish. So... It, it, that tells me our rules are, are pretty much spot on. When a person, when a team, a, a, admittedly a well-funded, well-managed team, can build a car and compete and beat the best out there. Pretty good story. Pretty good story, Duncan. You switching to yourself. One of the two things I want to know is just share with our friends the size of the audiences that some of the major events um, attract around Europe. You have limited TV coverage. Alan has fabulous TV coverage, but that's not the game, is it? It's more about the spectators who turn up and love the cars. Tell us some of those amazing numbers of historic races. I, I, I think that's a fair point, Chris. I think, uh, um, you know, if you if you view the classic car movement in the UK as a whole, it, that's been around for, you know, as long as the motor car, um, it, there's been an exponential growth in the whole movement in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and 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 especially in historic racing, the uh, uh, I think the uh, and, and on the back of that you're seeing explosion in the value of these cars uh, uh, internationally. The, the, a lot of these uh, historic racing cars are becoming the ones with real history. Anything with a Jim Clark attachment to it is worth considerable money these days. Um, and uh, you know that that classic car market uh, has, has its own life. But I'm a great believer that what really kick-started that growth in, in, uh, in values 10 or 15 or more years ago was the start of the explosion in the events that you could attend, either as a participant or as a spectator. Uh, and you've got to say, head and shoulders at the, at the lead of that charge has been Goodwood and the Goodwood revival. It, it's, you know, it's been around for 20 years now. It, is a, it's, it has always been the bench setter for historic, in fact, for any event, historic motorsport, anything in the events world, you know, Goodwood has always done it unbelievably well. You know, Goodwood Revival has 100,000 spectators every day. That's uh, 300,000 people. By UK standards, that's an enormous number of people. And, and it is a bit of a rarity in the historic world in the sense that it does have a global TV audience. 
and uh, it, it's mighty, mighty impressive for it. But if you look at events like Silverstone Classic, happens uh, every summer. Um, you know, again, they have you know ninety to hundred thousand people across the weekend. So these are huge numbers. But the other bit that's really, really interesting with these events, particularly when you compare them against the modern motorsport world, you know, something like Silverstone Classic will be having getting on for a thousand cars racing across a program of events. Now, the, the, there's, there's, there are outside of club racing at the top levels of motorsport, there are no there are no race events that have anything remotely close to that number of cars and competitors. You know, if you've got five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand, uh, five, six, seven, eight hundred cars, if you imagine most of those cars are probably two drivers. So, you know, you're talking a thousand to two thousand racing drivers, never mind spectators. But these these events are absolutely colossal. And there's there's events of this magnitude going on, uh, you know, two or three times a month somewhere in the UK, if not in Europe. There's uh, there's a parallel movement going on, on, the, on, on uh, in mainland Europe that very much matches what's happening here in the UK. There's a great appetite for uh, to, to go and explore some of those exciting continental uh, circuits from the UK. And I have to say, there's a, there's a growing trend for guys from here wanting to go out and race their classic cars over in the States, which is, uh, which is great. We, you know, we've had a great tradition of uh, American drivers coming over here uh in in you know throughout throughout history and we're seeing that in historic racing we get great support from, from us drivers um and there's some fantastic cross-pollination going on on that basis yeah full of potential both sides uh and it's all based on a great passion um which i really personally identify with <laughs> well and the other thing that's very telling is that there's a there's a there's a, there's a rapidly growing interest in american the heritage of American motorsport. Uh, there's a big thing for Americana uh, over here anyway, just generally. But the, there's a big explosion in interest in American motorsport. Uh, things like the, uh, the, the, the American Speed Fest at Brands Hatch. These, these are colossal meetings. And uh, trying to take a little bit of uh, you know, the American style of doing things and making it work in, uh, in Europe. And it's proving very popular. Yeah, somehow uh, American muscle cars and taking tea on the lawn of Brands Hatch, just, it, it's a real problem. I always remember that. When the Formula One went to India, I was with one of the senior execs who just said, you know, we call these the espresso coffee set. I thought, you remember that? <laughs> we serve beer. Anyway, that's... Yeah, that's uh, Alan, I tell you, what, I was just sitting here thinking the way you do uh, arrange your rules and somehow keep the brands happy and the performers happy. How do you equalize performance? What, what, what do you do? Uh, I was thinking aloud, that, uh, I will think it out. The weather actually is quite an equalizer too. And I know you've got a video that we'll see, but how do you formally uh, equalize performance? To well, the of the, everybody. Honestly, it's quite easy. Um, we, we, we equalize the, the the, the boost on each engine. So, so each engine gets air flowed and, and we set a boost level for each engine and that's it. We don't touch that for the year because we then know that all engines start the year um, with the same amount of horsepower, plus or minus 1%. Uh, and we don't touch that during the year and, and nor can the engine builders touch the engine then that's locked in for the year. So we know that that doesn't change. Um, and we do spot checks along the way to make sure it doesn't change. So the engines are equalised as far as as, as far as uh, ultimate horsepower. How they how they they get to that 
that power figure and what sort of torque figure they use is up to is up to them. So different engines will have different characteristics, but its ultimate performance level is 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 monitored by us. Uh, and then the cars are all with uh, are all have to meet minimum weights and and and, and lengths and everything else. That's all we do. And then during the year, we, we have success ballast. Uh, and success ballast is this way of, uh, of, of telling people how that work is horse racing. Uh, horse racing has success ballast, has had it since the 18th century. Uh, you know, the, the more successful horses get a bit more weight on them. And, and, and that's, just, that's just the way it works with us. So we have success ballast that goes on during the course of the championship. Uh, to, equal, to, to do nothing more than you're not trying to stop a car, a good car from winning. You just want to make sure that it wins by that much, not that much. You know, so so it's 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 a legitimate form of making making the competition as close as possible. And as I said, horse racing is a great example of that. So that's all we do. So during the course of the year, we 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 make sure that the cars start off equally as far as power goes. We monitor that. We've got very sophisticated monitoring systems in the cars um, and logging systems in the cars. And then the per race success ballast kicks in um, and, and keeps, it, keeps it as close as it, as it does. And as an indication of that, um, uh, last year, or sorry, yeah, last year, because that was a, a full year, we had a, a short year this year. Uh, last year, we had uh, all but one of those makes of cars won races. So 10 of the 11 makes of cars won races. We had uh, 14 of the 30 drivers win races. Um, and the race, like it did this year, the championship like it did this year, got down to the last race of the year. And, then, and in fact, eight of the last 10 championships have got down to the last race of the year after 30 races. So it sort of looks like we've got it pretty well, pretty well organised. Um, and to underline that, I think we've got a video which we can show. This, this is our last race from Brands Hatch. Um, it, it was wet and getting dark. Uh, notable for, the, for no spectators, unfortunately, because normally at our last race of, uh, of, the, uh, of the year, we'd have 45, 46,000 spectators. We had none. Uh, so it looks, it looks pretty empty. But there's a video which we can just show, just a minute's worth of, worth of racing for the last race. The final round of the 2020 Quick Fit British Touring Car Championship. The championship to be decided. The lights go red, the lights go out. Now, who makes the best start? Let's see. Good getaway by Rory Butcher, who gets up alongside Chris Smiley on the way down towards Paddock Hill Bend for the first time. And as they dive into Paddock then, this is where visibility is at a premium, grip is at a premium. Moffat has come out ahead. Now, where is Sutton in all of this? He's behind Turkington and he might lose a place or two on the run up the hill. But Rory Butcher on his toes. He's gone second. Good getaway. Camus tries to make a move on the inside of Sutton. Is he going to go through? It's crucial for him to stay in the title hunt. Yes, he gets up the inside. Ingram again makes an attack and this time has he gone through? He has. That's bad news for Turkington. More points given away. The door is opened, Morgan goes through, Ingram goes through. This is Sutton making his move, board position. The final round of the Quick Fit British Touring Car Championship is going to be won by Rory Butcher for the second time in his career. The British Touring Car Champion is Ash Sutton. Uh, 
and 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 I'll, I'll I'll finish on that by saying I've never seen a dull wet race yet. So I'd have every I'd have every race in the wet if I if I could. But uh, that wasn't a particularly uh, a brilliant race as far as as far as uh, uh, the closeness of the competition. They're always close. They're all you know we only have short races. You know, on a, on a race weekend uh, we'll have three races on the Sunday. Uh, each of them is about half an hour, 25 minutes or half an hour. So there are three short races in the day. Um, and we, we, with the success ballast and everything else, no one gets away. You know, So I think the lead you saw at the end of that race was probably the most we had all year from, from someone. Um, so you know, where, where, weather helps. You know, and the good British weather does help us during the course of the year, particularly this year because we started our season very late. We had to cancel the season and not start it until the until August. So, um, so we just, you know, raced into the worst weather we could, we could find. And, uh, and uh, the championship did well out of it. <laughs> so the TV, the TV figures were great because people didn't want to go outside and do anything because the weather was so awful. And, uh, and the racing was fantastic. We're getting towards the end of this and I've got a couple of questions that have come in. Um, any chance, this is one for you, Alan, any chance the WTCP or similar will be making it into the US at venues such as COTA and Richard, I don't have his details, but he's in here in the chat. If you're interested in taking cars to race in the USA and vice versa, get in touch. We specialize in this. I, I think it's great that business is being done online. And I know yeah. that EPAR Trade will help us put that together. But WTC... Uh, look, uh, in my position as, as president of the, of the FIA Touring Car Commission, um, the WTCC falls under me. We did have WTC races uh, in, in, uh, in the States of Sonoma for a couple of years. Um, but it, yes, certainly North America is, you know, is very much on the uh, on the horizon. And uh, when the world becomes a little bit more normal, um, I'm sure that we'll be looking at getting back in there again. There's another uh, person called Noah, and he asks, how do we anticipate the R&D volume that's spent on motorsport to change as Brexit progresses? Well, we didn't get away with no one mentioning Brexit. That's a shame. Right. That's, that's, that's way above my pay grade, so I'll let you answer that one. I'll, have a, I'll throw this in. Uh, Noah, I'll just tell you, the one thing that we've got to our benefit tonight to try and hit the time is we don't know the outcome of Brexit, so whatever I tell you would be <laughs> pointless. We are waiting on politicians to tell us whether it's absolutely a disaster or really great, and I would say we'll learn just before the New Year bell goes um, but I don't see any change in the R&D volume that is needed when you go racing. You only win races, not races, if you spend a lot of money on the development, and that will continue. Uh, in the UK, we get a substantial tax credit. I, if anything, I see that going up, uh, and that's to benefit motorsport. So I think it'll go up. It'll certainly hold. And with the 2030 decision to go... Uh, to go with it, to get rid of the internal combustion engine, boy, are there going to be some development projects in the meantime. Now, Duncan, I think I have to close shortly, but I would just say, with uh, as far as you're concerned, do tell me, uh, is is this sport growing because it's a family interest or because of the driver interest? You said something very interesting earlier to me that actually families are now enjoying this. I, I think that's very important. You've got to remember that that it, it's a it, it, you know, historic racing is a lifestyle choice. For, you know, I said earlier, nobody's going to sign you up for for for, for an F one seat at the, the end of the pit lane. It's a lifestyle choice. It, it's a it's a leisure pursuit. 
And yes, motor racing is a selfish thing to do, but 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 what happens outside of the car is a, is a much bigger chunk of the weekend than what the, the bit of time you're actually spending in it. So looking after everybody. But also there's a real vogue for longer races, uh, a real, real interest in longer races, two, three driver races. And uh, something we found over the years that, that is just fabulous. The idea of, you know, husbands and wives racing together, or fathers and sons, fathers and daughters as a team is something really, really special. Uh, and we, we, we've enjoyed a lot of that over the years and we, and we love that. I think that's a, something very, very special indeed. The other bit that we are seeing, just watching uh, Alan's little video there, is uh, increasingly we see interest from the modern world. Rory Butcher, um, you've just seen there winning that race in, in the wet in Brands Hatch, was racing a 50 sports car with us at Thruxton in the middle of August. Uh, and we, we, we see a bit of that, and that's fantastic. That, that, that's, uh, you know, that, to me, that means historics coming of age a little bit. We're, we're, we're recognised more. Um, but it, a little bit of respect goes both ways. I think that's wonders. Duncan, let me say there's a question for you. I love having these questions. And it's not, you're not going to blame me. For Duncan, the future of historic motorsport with the advent of clean energy. Bernard in Dublin. That's a nice lightweight thing. You've got 30 seconds to answer. <laughs> How many days we got? Uh, it's a bit like Brexit. We don't, we don't know the answer yet. It, 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 it is worryingly in the hands of the politicians, which is uh, never a great place to leave these things. Um, I, I mean, we'll keep doing what we can do as long as possible. I would love to see synthetic fuel uh, being taken seriously and, and massive investment in that, because selfishly, I think for the, the historic world, there's a future in that. But as you say, there's probably a whole day of, uh, of talking to talk about clean energy. Yeah, and we're doing that in February, but that's the sales pitch. The, we run a conference in February on energy efficient motorsport. But I know we've run out of time and I know Francisco or John will, as they used to do in the old days, you put a hook around our necks and take it <laughs> off. But it's uh, been a real pleasure, Duncan and Alan and, and to all our friends in America. Remember where the MIA is, stay in touch with us. And uh, we'd love to build two-way trade. Thank you. Thank you. What a fascinating session. Uh, uh, Chris, thank you for figuring out, like, when we got the call Monday night, says, uh, I got a call. It's urgent. Call me back. I was uh, 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 Chris Sellet. I said, oh, boy. <laughs> and so we have a situation with Malcolm. There is no way we can go around it. You pulled it together. You recorded that. It was so smooth. So thank you. Uh, that was a great, great way of keeping Malcolm involved in this panel because that was very important. I wanted Rally to be represented. Uh, I grew up in the center of France. I used to steal my car's dad at night. Uh, my hero was Ari Vatanen, so Rally is, is in my DNA. Uh, I didn't become a Rally driver, uh, <laughs> neither a Formula One driver, like every kid's uh, uh, dreamed of in Europe, but uh, that basically, you know, after that, my whole life has been in more sports. So we're delighted to have you. Uh, Alan, a big fan of you. I see you every year in January at the old sports show at the House of Lords uh, in the summer that Chris uh, and Fiona organized. You uh, run this series so magnificently. I'm a big fan of Matt Neal. Uh, he's a friend of us. Uh, yeah. Great ambassador of the sport. BTCC is such a strong series. I mean, keep up the great work and then you you are one of those promoters out there i thought it was very important to have you on duncan thank you very much for being with us historic racing is such a huge uh, market and and we've been talking you know in in the last two days about the youth 
people coming into sport, but also, you know, the, the older guys that, you know, uh, are wealthy and, and kind of want to buy the cars that they were dreaming when they were younger. And Stan21, who was uh, on our panel yesterday, on, on Monday on safety, uh, Eve has a great way of describing the sport. He says, you know, uh, the gentleman drivers are, 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 are the one that, you know, make a, we make a living because of them. They are the one, you know, uh, buying the equipment and, and the good helmets and the good uh, racing suits and all that stuff. And, and because uh, they have families, they have uh, uh, jobs and, uh, and they can't mess around. So, so this, is, this is very important what you do. And then Chris, you're such a great ambassador of the industry, uh, thank you. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, pass on to John Kiroy, who can say things in a much more elegant way and a much more uh, sophisticated way than I. And so, John, on to you. I know you wanted to say a, a lot of things here. Yes, well, I, I just really uh, appreciate the the engineering expertise that we found over and over again in the UK. And then uh, if, if there's a race engine builder out there who wants to shop race technology in the UK, if there's professional race teams who want to shop uh, uh, technology in the UK, contact the MIA, talk to Chris Aylin. He can help you set up an agenda when Francisca and I go over there. We try to meet with at least two companies in the morning, two companies at night, and then we try, in the afternoon. We try not to crash into anybody in the lovely roads of the UK. We always have what we call an oh shit moment where we, we drive out of a company after having intense dialogue and we go right into oncoming traffic. So we, we've been safe so far, but uh, yeah, contact Chris and I advise you, I mean, uh, go over there and, and check out some of the wonderful companies, both big and small. That is, that is a true story every year because when you get on the wrong side of the road and you're on the highway, there's no problem. You know, M1, M40, you get out of Heathrow, you're in the wrong way, but everybody's in the wrong way. It's no problem for us. It's yeah. when you exit the small little road and you go visit the SPA or the Lifeline or, or the AP or all, all the great guys, Extract, etc. You get out of little road and like, oh, shit. Francis, <laughs> like Francis, let me just tell you that I understand one of the major points of Brexit is that our prime minister said, when you guys drive on the right-hand side of the road, you can fish anywhere you like in our waters. They just said, "Hell with that." We'll, <laughs> we'll stick with that. Brexit simplified. <laughs> no, but Chris, I, 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 I like, I'm going to say something that I, uh, you're going to very much enjoy. Uh, first, but this is our first time even. I mean, the old things uh, when the world went upside down. Uh, we launched this platform two years ago, and people thought, oh, we're visionary now that is the pandemic. I mean, when we launched ePortrait and we took the industry into the 21st century and being digital, you know, not everybody was like, oh, digital, I don't know. And then suddenly all the eyes turned to us. That's one thing. But we couldn't stay here and just wait. And we started to come up with some ideas. What could we do? We launched the ePortrait Live Tech Webinar Series. And, uh, but then when we realized that there won't be, you know, if at the end of the year, we had to pull resources together and produce this. And we want it as a race industry event, which is actually the race industry event of the year to make it truly global. And, and you're going to be pleased to hear that we have 110 countries in the registration, 110. And that tells us two things is first, you're absolutely right, Chris, this is a global industry. People race all over the world. I heard Malcolm saying that's going to go back to Kenya. 
We have people in South Africa. We have people in Canada. We have people in Latin America. Uh, Alan, I'm going to uh, mention one thing. I think ACTC, uh, uh, Turismo Caratera, is one also one of the oldest racing series uh, in Argentina with you and NASCAR and all that, BTCC. So, Turismo, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the oldest. And there's a tremendous amount of people racing. People race from all over the world. And, and being online today makes it so easy and convenient for all of us to be together. And Paul Fanner said it in the opening act uh, this morning, says, this is so cool. I can finally talk to my friend. <laughs> you know? Let me just jump. I think you followed this. It's only a brief comment. As soon as we went online, forced to go online, we've been running for the last 10 years, the School of Race Engineering, where the top Formula One World Championship engineers teach other engineers. They're the tutors. They've got, they've got to have won a championship last year to tutor at our school. Because who wants to listen to an old guy with a white beard who used to do it this way? I want to talk to the guy who won a championship last year. We went, we went global with that. And we, we, every time we run a school, we, and we run them every two or three weeks, School of Race Engineering, we get Peru, New Zealand, Fiji, Japan. I have no idea what they're going to do with the technology of Formula One in Fiji, but there's a guy there fully prepared, ready to, but the idea was suddenly the knowledge explosion around the world to learn from the best. And it's been a great success. School of Race Engineering, it's, it's our only product. <laughs> Thanks for very, having me. Very good. And thank you very much, guys. We are to move you back as attendee. That way you can come on uh, anytime you want. Uh, there is a, a wonderful uh, panel uh, at 12 with some series organizer, USAC, Formula D, SCORE, World of Outlaw. There is a, a, you know, it's a full week. There is another one that's going to be interesting for you, Alan, as a producer. Uh, tomorrow, it's, uh, we call it No Rules, No Limit, Pike Speaks, King of Hammer, and uh, uh, Cam um, Cameron Speedway and uh, a Raceway and uh, National Association of uh, Diesel Motorsport. So oh, I'll, I'll have a look out for that. That's going to be fun. So it's uh, yeah. 8.57 here in California. We run this by the minute. So stay with us. We are going to move you as attendee. Thank you very much for being with us. And then My pleasure. Thank you very much. In England to join. We are delighted to have you on. Thank you. Registering on ePARTRADE is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number, and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePARTRADE as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now, and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.